Welcome to Calling All Stations, the transport podcast, and a very happy new year to all our listeners. I'm Christian Walmer, an author and journalist who has specialised in transport for the past 30 years. In every episode, we aim to keep you up to date with the most engaging news stories and interviews from across the world of transport. And with me is my regular co-presenter, Mark Walker, who has spent decades covering policy developments in transport. So, what stories do we have today? Well, first of all, Happy New Year to you, Christian, and likewise to uh, all of our listeners. In this episode, we're going to have a, a very extensive uh, examination of civil aviation safety in the light of an interesting positive report that was published during the last few days, but also two quite extraordinary incidents relating to civil aviation. Then you have an interview, Christian, with Edmund King, president of the AA, regarding the deployment rollout of electric vehicles on the roads in Great Britain, about which there's also been a lot of uh, coverage and public interest at the beginning of 2024. We'll then turn our attention to the state of the bus industry in England and an exclusive report from the Daily Mirror that confirmed what many of us suspected, that there have been very severe cuts to the bus network, especially outside of London, over the last 13 years. And then finally, we'll provide uh, a platform for you to make a few predictions about what might happen in transport in the coming year. Okay, well, thank you, Mark. And let's uh, go straight into uh, what has actually caught the news a lot uh, over the past uh, few days, in the few days that we've had in the new year, there's been actually two really uh, serious and worrying uh, incidents uh, that on uh, two uh, completely different airlines, a JL flight into Tokyo on the 2nd of January, and then three days later, uh, an Alaskan Airlines flight out of uh, Portland, uh, Oregon. Uh, very different incidents, but uh, both kind of raise uh, issues about air safety. And uh, fortunately, all those on board the JL flight uh, escaped, but there were five deaths of uh, a little plane that was uh, heading for earthquake rescue, um, which uh, and the five occupants of that were, were killed. Well, so let's start with the Japanese airline flights, which... A lot of people would have seen the spectacular footage of uh, the plane uh, burning out completely um, after it came into land, hit this other uh, little plane, burst into flames, ran along the railway, uh, <laughs> ran along the runway in uh, flames. And remarkably, all 379 uh, passengers and crew managed to, to get out safely. And uh, so in some respects, this was amazingly uh, good news. So it was very worrying that the plane burst into flames uh, so easily. But the fact that the evacuation procedures were such that everybody got out safely is a testimony to improvements in, in air safety. I, I, I mean, I remember, for example, 30 years ago, there was a similar fire of a plane on, man, on the runway at Manchester Airport um, and at the time, various mistakes were made um, and uh, there wasn't a quick enough response and about half the people, I think around 40 or 50 people, actually perished as a result of that. 
Um, and now we have, you know, a much kind of, I think, more efficient way of uh, evacuating people. There's been lessons learned from that. Uh, the insides of planes are less flammable, for example. Um, and clearly, there's been a lot of training about uh, air safety uh, and getting people out of uh difficult situations like that. So uh, in a way, that's a testimony to the improvements uh, there have been. With Alaskan Airlines flight, um, uh, again, there's some similarities with past incidents, uh, which I will refer to. But there, a door that was out of commission uh, somehow uh, flew off. And uh, fortunately, the uh, aircraft had only just taken off and therefore was not very high, but immediately the cabin depressurized, and there were no serious incidents that uh, the, nobody got sucked out. But what uh, experts suggest is that had this been uh, higher up, uh, people might well have been sucked out of this uh, door as uh, the cabin depressurized. And indeed, um, this has similarities with an accident I, I recollect from uh, Paris in 1974, when a, a DC-10, the cargo door, wasn't shut properly, and it took off, but it got uh, quite high. And uh, as a result, when the door flew off, uh, the cabin depressurized very quickly, uh, the floor collapsed, the crew uh, lost control, and uh, more than uh, 300 people uh, were killed in, in that incident. So the people on the... Uh, Alaskan Airlines flight had a very lucky uh, escape um, and there were no injuries. But it must be said, these two incidents highlight the fact that aviation, you know, is a perilous enterprise and, you know, flying in the air in these rather fragile tubes uh, is bound to have its risks. But what is remarkable is that um, the airline industry has become so much safer over the past 20, 30 years. I remember when I was transport correspondent at Independent uh, in the 90s, uh, I remember covering a report by Lufthansa at the time, which said that um, unless the rate of accidents per you know, thousand or million flights uh, started uh, reducing, then there would be an accident within a few years because the number of flights was increasing worldwide. There would be a, a major accident every couple of weeks and uh, the report basically said that that would become unacceptable to the public and that therefore safety had to uh, improve. And so it has. The rate of uh, accidents has uh, gone down from uh, something like four and a half uh, accidents per, uh, I think it's per 100 million flights, uh, down to something like one uh, or less than that. Of course, Christian, you've been covering as you say, airline safety for many years. And it's it's very interesting to see here your long-term perspective on all of this. But just in the last few days, we've had a really interesting report from Adrian Young, who works for the Dutch aviation consultancy TO70, that said some really remarkable things about improvements in civil aviation safety. Yes, indeed. Um, uh, he basically said that uh, 2023 uh, was essentially the, the first year in which there had been no uh, fatalities on international jet flights. 
there had been a, a couple of uh, domestic uh, uh, accidents, I think in Nepal and Brazil, with but still with uh, just about 80, 85 deaths or something like that. But uh, therefore, this was the safest year ever for uh, uh, international aviation. And indeed, you know, one does notice this, that there are actually uh, very few uh, uh, accidents uh, that all the major airlines, which many of which did suffer at times from uh, crashes. And indeed, I remember Qantas always boasted that it was the one that had never had a major accident out of you know all the, the, the major uh, airlines. Now, there's lots of airlines, uh, including many of the low-cost airlines, that have never had uh, a fatal accident. So that has improved, and it's improved actually through uh, the learning experience in a, in a similar way to how the railway safety has improved because uh, you know it's a classic thing of there's an accident and then uh, you learn from that and uh, you learn the lessons for example you improve the uh, the flight crew training for uh, incidents such as the fire in the plane in Tokyo uh, or you you basically learn uh, to improve the structure of the airlines. Of course, there's a couple of, of recent exceptions to that was when uh, Boeing had uh, a couple of, of crashes in its new uh, 737 MAX aircraft, um, uh, two terrible disasters, which were then put down to the fact that it had made changes to uh, software that had was not properly understood by the pilots, hadn't been properly explained to them, um, and resulted in, uh, I think, something like over 300 uh, deaths in the combination of the uh, two accidents. And indeed, uh, the MAX aircraft, which was the same one involved in the Alaskan Airlines uh, incident, uh, the MAX 737, which was an updated version of uh, the old 737, which has been around for 50 years, um, and uh, that, that resulted in their planes, their, the new version of the plane being... Uh, uh, grounded for uh, 20 months. Um, and of course, the last thing they want is a repeat of that, but it has uh, actually the Alaskan uh, incident, has Alaskan Airlines incident, has actually resulted in uh, this fleet being grounded in, in America and I think uh, elsewhere as well. So, uh, and again, that's because the lessons have to be learned from this before there's a tragedy. But of course, what you uh, uh, suggest and going back to your Lufthansa example from all those years ago is that these kind of uh, overall improvements in safety are derived from people working really hard to achieve those outcomes. They don't happen by chance or simply as a result of technological progress. You have to have a strategy in place and, and a relentless program of learning. Absolutely. And uh, actually, Mark, you also have to have regulation and, and tight uh, regulations. And and one of the things that emerged in the aftermath of the two uh, MAX disasters uh, from Boeing is that there hadn't been sufficiently tight regulation on the introduction of new types of software. Um, and there was a measure of self-regulation and that was very much highlighted in uh, the post-accident uh, uh, reports into it, and there have been changes as a result of that. So, uh, yes, it's all about uh, a relentless effort by lots of people in the industry, but also with the 
backing of uh, regulation and the readiness of the aviation authorities to impose regulation. And of course, one of the lessons from the Tokyo Haneda incident on the 2nd of January is if you are traveling by civil aircraft, do pay attention to those safety briefings. Take take your nose out of your book or newspaper or whatever and pay attention because it just might save your life. Absolutely. And I, I must say, I'm slightly remiss about that. And uh, the next time I go on a flight, I'll make sure uh, I do look at uh, the safety uh, instructions and uh, the demonstration and make sure that I know where the nearest exit is. With lots of news this week about the introduction of electric vehicles on roads in Great Britain, you've been catching up with one of the experts on this matter, Christian. Yes, I thought it would be a good idea to uh, kind of bring people up to date about electric vehicles, because there is an awful lot of hype about it. But uh, as you will hear from uh, this interview with Edmund King, uh, who's the president of the AA, there's also been a, a lot of developments and there is progress towards this target of uh, essentially phasing out uh, fossil fuel cars by uh, the almost the middle of the century, 2040. So uh, it makes for a very interesting listen. There's been a lot of talk about uh, electric vehicles lately, about the fact that there might not be enough charging points, about the fact that Rishi Sunak has uh, somewhat delayed targets for their implementation and so on. And uh, we thought we'd catch up on the issue with uh, the best person to talk about it, which is Edmund King, the president of uh, the AA, who tells me he's been there president for the last 16 years. He was at the RAC before that. And what he doesn't know about uh, cars and uh, motoring, uh, I think you could write on a very small piece of paper. So, Edmund, welcome to uh, Calling All Stations. And um, I did think you were the right person to bring us up to date with what's happening in uh, electric vehicles. I, I mean, what, what's the overall situation? Well, you know, what's mm. a where are we at in this kind of great transformation from uh, internal combustion engines to uh, electric vehicles? Well, first, Christian, thank you for welcoming me onto your podcast, Calling All Stations. I think the electric vehicles, it's an incredibly exciting period. And I think we need a bit of context here because the combustion engine car hasn't changed much for over 100 years you know if you actually think about it back to the model t ford four wheels steering wheel combustion engine and indeed there were some electric vehicles back 100 years ago as well i, I often say this edward edmund that that um yeah the car is still the car i say that about it trains is. as well the trains are still yeah. trains they run on on uh, metal rails and so on absolutely yeah. But I think with electric vehicles, what, what I've seen, what, what has changed, um, I had my first one, you'll probably remember, it was about 20 years ago. In fact, um, they were launched in London by the then mayor, Ken Livingstone, and I had one for six months. It was a Ford Think car. It was a kind of polyurethane-type small city car that only had a range of about 30 miles. Um, it was incredibly slow. And, and indeed, one fateful Friday when I somewhat foolishly decided to drive it from central London to St Albans, I got to Radlett and run out of charge because I hadn't worked out 
it was raining and that my windscreen wipers would use more of the battery. Now, when I think back 20 years to the Ford Think car, and then I think to the electric cars that are on the market today, and in fact, that I drive today, things have come on in leaps and bounds. You know, that you have got attractive, you, 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 you have got technologically advanced vehicles that are really good to drive, that have much better ranges. So in, in, in terms of that kind of picture on the automotive market, things have changed from the better. You know, I, I, I will admit it, you know, I, I was brought up with cars. I lived next door, but one to Colin Chapman, the founder of Lotus Cars, when I was a kid. And that gave in, me in quite Norfolk, a passion. In Norfolk. Yeah, in, in Norwich, yeah. yeah. And that gave me quite a passion for cars. And Chapman drove, uh, flew me, actually, to my first Grand Prix as, as, as a kid. And I met Graham Hill and Emerson Fittipaldi and all of those. So, you know, I did grow up with cars. I've worked in automotive of one sort or another for, for most of my life. And I would say some seven or eight years ago, I was fairly pessimistic about the future because the early electric vehicles were functional, but not really exciting, not good to drive. You know, you, you really did need to be a bit of an anorak to really embrace them. But what we're seeing now is some of the best cars are electric cars. So, you know, some of the best cars o overall are electric cars. But best so in think, terms of what? In terms of comfort, in terms of uh, comfort, speed? Joy, in terms of joy, joy of driving, excitement, uh, functionality. They are quiet. They're technologically advanced. They are safe. So in, ter in terms of that, I'm... I, I'm encouraged that that you know we're not downgrading, if you like, but it is radically different, and you know it's different the way we we fuel them. Although that there are still lots of myths about electric cars, and obviously we kind of know quite a lot about these myths because we attend about nine thousand breakdowns every day. And those include electric vehicles. And what's really interesting, Kristen, is that the top 30% of breakdowns for electric vehicles are exactly the same as those for petrol or diesel vehicles. Oh, really? I thought they'd and, be running out of charge, that most of them had run out of charge. Exactly. That, that is the um, myth. So the top 30% of breakdowns... And that's wrong, and I'm wrong. Oh, right. Fascinating. Oh, totally. Oh, really? Totally. So the top 30% are... Uh, uh, tires and wheels and 12 volt battery and that is the same for electric vehicles as with petrol vehicles or diesel vehicles now with running out of charge we we've got the latest figures on that about five years ago eight percent of the breakdowns of electric vehicles was out of charge two years ago it was four percent last year it was 2.3 percent so it is a tiny proportion that are out of charge. And of those 2.3% last year, half of those weren't actually out of charge. They were low on charge. And, and the driver was worried, so they contacted us. So, you know, this, this kind of talk about 
range anxiety and you read articles in the press about, you know, I did a journey to the West Country and couldn't make it. Yeah. Frankly, it's nonsense. I mean, I've driven John O'Groats to Land's End in an EV. I've driven another one from Cardiff to Bristol to London to Edinburgh to Belfast to Dublin. And I charged in all of those places. I didn't have to wait to charge. I think apart from one or two occasions, I had to wait. So, but but how long I've does it take you to, to charge? How long does it take you to charge each time over those sort of distances? Oh, next next to nothing. So in in it in a modern EV, if you are between twenty percent charge and eighty percent charge, and and the advice is to only charge up. To eighty percent, it's it's a bit like a phone battery. You preserve it better if you don't go under twenty percent. You don't go over eighty percent. Right. So if you're within that, and I I did it last week coming back from Bristol, I stopped at Lee De Delamere Services on the M4. I had about twenty five percent charge. I plugged in, went for a coffee, went for a sandwich. 20 minutes later, when I came back to the car, I was at 80%. So yeah. I I needed a break anyway. You know, the advice we, we give at the AA anyway is that you should stop off every two hours or so, you know, have a coffee, walk around, wake yourself up. So as long as there are charges there and they're available, the, the time spent actually charging is fine on motorway service areas. The majority of people charge at home if they can and i do accept there are about 40 percent of households haven't got off-street parking and i think that that is more problematic because in my case i would say 98 percent of the time i charge at home it's only if i'm if i'm going to norwich and back to to watch the canaries i can actually get there on one charge but i normally get a boost halfway just to remove any kind of range anxiety right. and in, in case the road was closed and i had to be diverted and all all of that but the majority of cases if you've got off-street parking it is easy to charge at home and also it's much cheaper you only pay five percent vat on your electricity at home if you've got a tariff that you can charge between midnight and five in the morning, it is only about p a a kilowatt, which compared well, I'm to sorry, how much a kilowatt? Charge, I missed that. How much a kilowatt? Yeah, about nine nine p at the right. lowest period. Whereas if you're on a motorway service area with a rapid charger, it can be as high as about eighty two p. So there's oh, a wow. massive wow. massive wow. difference. So if you can charge at home, it is much more affordable and so much cheaper than a petrol or diesel car. I mean, on, honestly, when I now, because I've been driving electric cars for so long, when I go past a petrol station and I look at the costs of fuel, it, it, it really frightens me, you know, because I no longer go to petrol station. Once you've made that initial purchase, and I do accept generally electric vehicles are more expensive to buy and you know unless you're lucky enough to have a company car or salary sacrifice where you get big tax breaks 
But once you've got the car, the actual running costs are much cheaper. Okay, so you've sold you've sold us the idea of electric vehicles, but has the government bought that idea? Because uh, you know they've they've slowed down the 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 the, the targets to take it mm. up, take them up, and uh, you know will we actually get to this uh, situation by by mm. twenty forty when you know mm. we we won't be having very many fossil fuel cars at all yeah i mean the government's position is is really quite interesting when you dissect it because obviously originally the target was petrol and diesel cars new ones would be phased out in 2030 the government then did a u-turn on that last year and changed it from 2030 to 2035 because they thought that would be more popular the irony is, though, Christian, under, underneath those targets is something that is called the zero emission vehicle mandate. And that hasn't changed. And that is actually quite radical. What that says is this year, for manufacturers, 22% of the cars they sell should be zero emission. And right. if they don't meet those targets for every, every every car beyond that they would have to pay something like 15000 pounds now that zero emission mandate has, hasn't changed and it means by 2030 80% of a manufacturer's cars have to be zero emission so even though they changed that headline figure to help drivers from 2030 to 2035 the mandate below it, which, which mandates manufacturers, hasn't changed at all. So, you know, we still have pretty radical targets compared to the rest of Europe or indeed the rest of the world. Are we doing better than the rest of Europe? Yeah, it, it does vary. There are some countries that are markedly better, like Norway, because Norway had such big incentives. You know, it, it was almost everyone in Norway had a Tesla, you know, you, right. you, could, you, could, you could get 60% off. Um, right. They've, they've slowed that down now, but it, but it did give them a massive lead. Amongst the other countries we're yeah, we are actually do, doing quite well. But the interesting thing that you initially asked about, and I've kind of gone off a bit of a tangent and I apologize is, are there enough charges yeah. out there? And I think, again, this, this gets somewhat confusing because people talk about this government target of 300,000 charges by the end of the decade. And, and yes, some minister did say that. But, you know, the government didn't provide us with petrol stations. They didn't go out and do it. The first petrol station in the UK was provided by the Automobile Association. Older <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. And I've heard government ministers actually refer to that. And again, with electric chargers, the government are not providing the majority of chargers. I mean, the majority of chargers on the public highway are still done by private companies investing in, in that infrastructure. Yes, there are grants for local authorities, for some local charges, for some on-street charges, 
you know, some of the lamppost charges and things like that that will be vital for those people without off-street parking. But, it, but you know, the government's saying 300,000. Well, that's, that's a kind of notional figure. They are not going to provide them. I do think there is a role for government, though, in filling in the gaps, because if you look at the map of Britain, some areas do have more charges per head or per car than other areas. You know, London, the southeast is 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 it's a lot better good. than the northeast. Yeah, northeast yeah. is particularly bad. Yeah. Absolutely. Whereas parts of Scotland are are really really good, and and Scotland took a lead on us by. Uh, providing free charges about six or seven years ago. So, right. so yeah, yes, there are some gaps. So there are some roles for government and local authority, particularly to help fill in those gaps. But, you know, the market will decide on, on, on the vast majority of charges. You know, you, you've got companies like um, GridServe, like Instavault, who are investing billions of pounds in, in charging infrastructure, you know, and, and you've got some big electric charge forecourts, big one at Braintree in Essex, big one in Norwich, you know, where, where, where you've got 30, 40 charges, you know, big, big investments. But is there not a danger <laughs> that you'll, you'll end up with areas where you just can't have an electric vehicle? Um, I'm not sure that is the case because... In most rural areas, you would have enough land or off-street parking to put in your own charger. Right. And as most cars now have a range of 200 to 300 miles, if you think about it, even if you lived you know, in deepest Lancashire or deepest North Wales, if you could charge it at home and you've got a range of 200 miles, then actually you are okay. So, so again, it's getting over some of these myths. The, the, the one problem, though, I do foresee here, Kristen, is, you know, when we turn up on a Sunday night at a motorway service area, and it is, it, it, it is getting better, you know, you, you are getting more charges there. There are still, um, I think, about four of the motorway service areas that haven't got any charges at all. So that, that needs to be improved. Right. But when, when you turn up now and say say there are eight charges and you know five of them are occupied and then you see another three EVs come come in and you have to wait. The way I look at that at the moment, at the moment it's just about okay. You know, you, you can do it on most journeys and with a bit of planning, you should you should never, you know, wait till you've only got 10% charge. I will always charge before then. So I'll stop before I have to. But, but the thing that does get me, when I look around at these massive service areas, and I think only 3% of cars on the road are EVs today, and then when I look ahead and think, well, what when it's 15%? What when it's 20%? What when it's you know, 50%? How many more charges will, will we need? And I think that is still a bit of a daunting picture. So how do you plan for this? How, how do you solve that if it's mainly yeah. the private sector doing it? How do you deal with that? Well, well, that that is one of the things that the government have, have started to try and address by um, freeing up some of the planning laws whereby the connections to the grid 
can be made sooner without all that bureaucracy because what one of the problems was getting those connections in and and if you like future proofing those connections knowing that in five years time you'll need to double the number of charges so it is it is quite a massive infrastructure project and national highways have a policy for this um you know al alongside the private sector so th that is my one area where you know i am concerned when i look to the future you know so, currently to, today you can get by despite okay. you know what 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 some articles say so you what 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 um obviously we we may certainly i hope we will have a, a labor government uh at some point this year are you advising them to do anything is there something that they they really need to to deal with in, in relation to this yeah i mean the th things we've basically said to labor as as we've said to all parties it really it really is down to freeing up that planning process speeding up that planning process so that those companies that are there to invest can can invest and and aren't thwarted by the kind of bureaucracy of, of planning and i i think that is the number one thing the government itself whichever government cannot afford themselves to put thousands of charges across the country they right. cannot afford to do that they didn't do it with petrol stations they shouldn't have to do it you know it shouldn't be a government thing but they do need to free up the way for the private sector to deliver. And they do need to fill in the gaps, which some local authorities are. OK, so, well, you know, we're not there yet, but, you know, we we are on the road to that zero emission future. And and then just to, to end on, then there is the big side issue, uh, Edmund, which is quite an electric vehicle issue, but... When you mm. do get to 10 or 15 or 20 percent and petrol sales start to plummet, mm. diesel sales start to plummet and that yeah. wonderful tax take. Uh, gets yes. Used, what do you then envisage that you'll just have to tax electric cars or, or what, what, you know, what, what do you think is mm. going to happen as a result of that? Yeah, this is the perennial question, because, as you know, the government takes about 30 billion pounds in, in, yes. in tax from drivers. And all the graphs show that that will drop off quite considerably. I mean, it was interesting a few years ago for the Wolfston Economics Prize. The, the, the question was, how do you address and pay for the future of motoring, you know, when you haven't got this taxation? And um, I did a submission, in fact, with my wife, Deirdre, who's an economist, and we talked about road miles. So what our concept was, you know, it's akin to road pricing, but you and I know you will never sell road pricing as such. It's yes. always 10 years away. It's yeah. always politically impossible. Yes. You and I were there when Alistair Darling put his proposals out, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, no, I was there the way... when, when McGregor took us, flew us across what? to uh, Oslo yeah. and, and, yes. and, uh, uh, and uh, Gothenburg. And and yes. to look at the, the the road pricing things they were doing then, and that was nineteen ninety three or four or something. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yes. And it was ten ten years away then, and it's still yes. ten years away. So what what we pr proposed in road miles is that to sell it to the public, every member of the public would get three thousand miles free, and then after that, 
you would pay per mile. But if you lived in a rural area, you'd get a third more. If you were a disabled driver, you'd get more. But it was just a way of packaging it to make it more saleable to the public. And then you could transfer your road miles if you weren't using them. You could sell them. It becomes a currency. Um, well, we were runners-up in the Wolfston Economics Prize. Unfortunately, we didn't win the 250000 prize, but we did win ten grand. But Wow. Um, well, that's a great yes. idea. That's a great idea, uh, Edmund. And I think... Um, you know, we'll promote that as uh, calling all stations because I think uh, that's a very workable idea, quite equitable because people use up the 3,000 miles. It still might be an issue in rural areas and so on. You might have to think, well, maybe if you live in a very rural area, you get 5,000 to start with. Yeah. Live... yeah, no, we did that. We offered a third more. So we, oh, right. we did cover, yeah. cover yeah. that off. So, right. so, so, yeah, I think at some stage that will have to come. But currently, the, both the current government and opposition parties are far too nervous to talk they about it at the moment. Large, you know, yes. They won't they won't touch it. So I still think it will probably be five, six years at least off. And then it it, it will take the courage of someone like Ken Livingston, who when he came into London and uh, as mayor at the beginning um of the process, you know, introduced congestion charging, didn't wait for an election towards the end. Yeah. He did it straight away and did it. And I think and nobody that's thinks what... about it anymore. Nobody thinks. Absolutely. Nobody thinks about it. It's not even even when they were making all that fuss about ULEs, which we won't go into. But uh, nobody was then saying, "Oh God, you know what about the outrage of the congestion charge?" Yeah. So yeah. no, well, thank you, Edmund. That's a great kind of uh, uh, run around the houses in an electric uh, vehicle, and um, you know, enjoy your uh, trips to uh, my uh, rivals, Norwich, because I'm a big part of supporter. Thanks. Cheers. Thanks very much. The Daily Mirror had a New Year's Day exclusive stating that bus services are in crisis as the miles driven have plummeted by a quarter since the present UK government uh, won power, saying that according to official figures, buses in England drove 300 million fewer miles in the last year than in 2010 a massive fall of over 22%, despite being the most popular form of transport. How do you react to that, Christian? Well, uh, it is the most uh, uh, well-used part of uh, public transport. And of course, that is dominated by uh, London and a couple of other cities, but London in particular, where it just, you know, everybody uses buses, but, you know, outside of the few uh, big conurbations, uh, really, you just can't get a bus. Um, and so, uh, you know, the government has tried, to be fair to the uh, Conservative government, they've tried by having this £2 uh, maximum fare, they've renewed that. Uh, but, uh, you know, as has been pointed out, there's no point having a £2 fare if there's no bus. Um, and that really is the, 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 the case for large swathes of, of, of the country. And uh, it's been a, a, a slow but long-term decline, really, ever since the industry was privatised in the mid-1980s and subsidies, subsidies were removed from uh, local authorities. And local authorities now you know, often have to choose between do you keep the local swimming pool open or do you run the bus service and, and so on. And uh, those cuts are continuing. As, as you probably know, there's about 30 
local authorities that are may go bankrupt this year. So uh, you know they're not going to kind of increase the uh, their, their their support for for bus services, which is something that doesn't quite show up as much as closing a swimming pool or a library or uh, you know really squeezing social services. So uh, this is going to continue unless there is uh, essentially money, but also uh, maybe the the freedom for local authorities to run services, and and that again is something that the government has done. Uh, they've uh, restored the right in Manchester to franchise out the services, and there's other councils that are going to try and and follow that route. But and I think this is a big part. You know, will they have the money to do it? I mean, it's no good just giving local authorities the right to run services if they can't afford uh, to to run them. Now. I don't think one should be romantic about this. I mean, I think, you know, that report of the Daily Mirror highlights the fact, well, there's many villages that, uh, you know, don't have a bus service at all. And and frankly, you know, I can't see uh, uh, that being restored in a lot of places. I mean, really, if you've got a, a village of kind of 100 people and, you know, most of them have cars or whatever, you're probably never going to get a, a, a bus service back. But there's an awful lot of, of towns, uh, suburbs and towns, uh, small towns, uh, you know, larger villages where there's absolutely no service to the to the local, uh, uh, the local big town or or conurbation or whatever, and I think they should be, and a Labour Party should look at this if it comes to power. There should be a a system like there is in Switzerland, where if you're a a, a town or village of a certain amount of people, uh, you absolutely have to have a bus service to the nearest big town. And if you're a town of a certain size, you have to have uh, a certain number of bus services, uh, uh, buses running to the to the major town every every day, or to the suburbs every day, and so on. And you know, actually having a coherent strategy towards restoring uh, bus services, even if it takes five or ten years, at least with a strategy there, um, people would be able to hope that you know there will be some restoration of bus services. But at the moment. Um, as the Daily Mirror emphasises, it is in crisis. And of course, as well as the routes themselves, it's the hours of coverage, isn't it? You you there in London are used to buses running from pretty much uh, five o'clock in the morning till one o'clock in the morning, where it's in so many medium-sized towns and cities across Great Britain. You might be able to get the bus for one leg of the journey, but you can't actually get the bus back after the trip to the restaurant or the or the pub or the or the cinema because the service has stopped running in the evening absolutely and that makes them not so useful so that people get again up with cars look in london it's even better than that we have night services on a lot of routes and uh, uh you can get home and we even have the underground running at, at, at uh uh night in, in uh, on some lines and and there's even now a london overground uh is running a a, a night service so uh, on some days, not every day, but uh, nevertheless. So uh, it is really, uh, you know, a, a, a tale of two different, completely different systems with uh, London being a beneficiary of a, a service that people can only dream of outside. And, and, and maybe that's an ambition, again, that the politicians could have, is to, to try to offer. And I have heard Andy Burnham say this, you know, we need London-type uh, services, and, and then we would... Uh, not have so many cars on our roads. So, um, you know, there's a lot of work to be done there.
Here's Christian's final thought from the departure lounge. Well, I thought I'd take uh, advantage uh, and offer the listeners a few uh, mystic Walmart kind of uh, predictions for the year. And I've, I've been doing this in Rail Magazine for many years and I normally get it wrong. So, uh, but here goes anyway. So uh, the first one I think, uh, which is very basic, is a political one. You know, I think Keir Starmer will win the election. Labour will have a healthy majority and then we'll have to cope with all sorts of difficulties. But, you know, we wish them good luck. The second one thing is that the election, I don't think will take place till towards the end of the year. Uh, as Rishi Sunak has just uh, hinted, although he hasn't actually committed himself to that, but he's hinted that. So the Tories are going to have to publish their draft rail reform bill, and that will make interesting reading because they have to make some hard decisions on it. I think you might recollect in one of our earlier podcasts, we, we discussed the point, uh, even quoted uh, uh, that Mark Harper, the transport secretary, uh, actually said, well, there's still some... Uh, issues to sort out about how much power this we want to give this new Great British Railways organisation and so on. So uh, they're going to have to show their hand and that will be interesting. And I suspect, actually, that they're going to leave quite a lot of power with the Department for Transport and not kind of hand over everything to Great British Railways. But we'll see about that. Then my favourite subject, as you know, autonomous vehicles, about which I've, I've written a book and which I, I kind of follow very assiduously. And uh, Cruise, the two, two big players basically in the United States, Cruise and Waymo. Um, and I, Cruise has got into great trouble because of, of an accident where a woman was hit by a conventional car, knocked into the path of a cruise car, and the car then actually ran her over again, uh, causing uh, her with terrible injuries. So uh, they've now withdrawn all their cars. And I suspect that Waymo, which is actually Google, uh, Alphabet, as the parent company is called, is actually going to also get into trouble and, and may well kind of begin to retrench. And that, that's my prediction. Uh, I'm sticking my neck out on that one. And finally, I think that there's going to be a lot of pressure for legislation on uh, dockless bike hires. Now, uh, in London, these uh, there are many, many bikes coming, uh, mainly Lime and Human Forest, a couple of other companies. There's just you're seeing increasing numbers of these bikes, which are now mostly or nearly all electric bikes, uh, unlike the docked bikes, the Santander bikes, which are not electric. And they're very popular, they're quite expensive, uh, but there is no clear kind of uh, legislation and, and rules about these. And so companies are setting up, uh, they're kind of leaving their bikes kind of lying around everywhere. Um, it's all a bit uh, chaotic. And I suspect there will be big pressure uh, to sort, uh, to begin to sort that out, along with e-scooters, which also need sorted out. So those are my predictions. Calling All Stations, the Transport Podcast with Christian Walmart is produced by Cogitamus Limited, a leading provider of public affairs consultancy services in the sector. We hope you've enjoyed this episode. If you have, please consider giving us a five-star rating with whichever platform you use. Do also follow us on X, formerly known as Twitter. Our handle is at AllStationsPod.